Well, we are in our 14th week in our study of the book of Acts, and I've got a little bit of a uh, pop quiz for you this morning. It's only one question, and it's fill in the blanks. Are you ready? In your own mind, complete this sentence. God is using me personally to help us dare to be the church by. I'll give you a second to think about it. How are you personally and specifically seeking to follow Jesus as he leads us in daring to be the church in these days? I'll let you sit with that question as we walk through our text today, and we'll come back to it later. So if you have a Bible with you this morning, would you open with me to Acts chapter 9? Over the last 13 weeks, we have watched God do the extraordinary as he has commissioned, launched, established, and expanded the first century church. Last week was another example of the power and the sovereignty of Jesus as he does the amazing to advance and accomplish his mission. God brought Saul, the persecutor of the church, to his knees and to faith in Christ and to a complete 180 in his zealous direction. And Jesus and Ananias said in Acts chapter 9 verse 15 that Saul is, quote, a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. That's what Jesus said to Ananias. Thus, the conversion of Saul marks a significant moment in God's plan to reach the world. Today, we continue in chapter 9, and we see that Jesus, by the Spirit, is on the move once again. And we'll see again that he is extraordinary and that he is the one who is progressively leading his church, even in crossing unexpected boundaries. Last week, Josh ended with verse 31 of chapter 9. After Saul is sent to Tarsus, we read, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Then in verse 32, Luke shifts the scene away from Paul and the camera focuses back on Peter. Why? Because even though Paul will be the leading apostle to the Gentiles, it is actually Peter that God is going to call to prepare the way by leading the church in smashing seemingly impenetrable walls. Verse 32 now, as Peter was traveling through all those regions, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. In the last part of chapter 9, Luke will share two miraculous occurrences, one in Lydda and one in Joppa. The significance of these two towns is that God is taking Peter and Luke is taking the reader progressively into places that are increasingly Gentile, non-Jewish in population. He's doing this in preparation for a critically important turning point in chapter 10. And we'll get there, but first Peter has to actually get there. Verse 33, there he found a man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years for he was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. Immediately he got up 
And all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Peter is visiting the saints, the community of believers in Lydda, and there he accounts, encounters a man who had been paralyzed and bedridden for eight years. Now Luke gives very little detail in the situation, telling us only of Peter's spirit-led declaration. Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. What's important to note is the crystal clear manner in which Luke reminds us of who the healer is. It is not Peter. It is Jesus Christ who heals. The only other detail that Luke gives in this situation is also important. He points out in verse 35 that the people of Lydda and Sharon, the surrounding area, turned to Christ because of what Jesus did in healing Aeneas. Then quickly, Luke shifts our focus to Joppa, verse 36. Now in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. Last week, Josh clarified for us that Paul's name was not changed by Jesus from Saul to Paul. Rather, Saul was Hebrew and Paul was Greek. So, interestingly and significantly, in verse 36 this week, as Luke begins his next uh, snapshot, he tells us that Tabitha's name in Greek is Dorcas, which was really unfortunate for her. And as the account unfolds, Luke will refer to her as Dorcas, using the Greek, even though Peter calls her Tabitha. Why? Did Luke just think that was funny? Actually, this is all a part of the extraordinary journey Luke is taking the reader on from Jerusalem to the Gentiles. Luke also, in verse 36, describes this woman as a woman of character, uniquely highlighting her as a female disciple. And we'll see that she was an active and important part of the church with a vital ministry in the church. Verse 37, and it happened at the time that she fell sick and died. And when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, do not delay in coming to us. So Peter arose and went with them. And when he arrived, they brought him into the upper room. And all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and the garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. Clearly, Dorcas was deeply loved and greatly valued by the church in Joppa. In verse 38, we read of the men sent by the church to Peter, and they, two men from the church, were imploring Peter to come, and perhaps, should the Lord will, intervene. Notice, too, in verse 39, that the widows were weeping at the loss of Dorcas, and they are showing Peter what she had done through, for the church through the very close which they wore. Well, God had an extraordinary plan to further advance his church and to honor this treasured woman in the church. Verse 40, 
But Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. And calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. It became known all over Joppa and many believed in the Lord. Amazing. But notice Peter's posture in this incredible situation. He doesn't call attention to himself. He is not there as Peter, the powerful, anointed celebrity healer. Rather, he is a humble and completely dependent servant of Jesus Christ. He asks everyone to leave the room. And in humility, quietness, meekness, and utter dependence, he takes to his knees to beseech Jesus to show up in a powerful way. And he does. The Spirit of God brings Tabitha back to life and gives her back to the church in Joppa. And once again, God is glorified as more people come to Christ through Tabitha's resurrection and her further ministry. But I'm wondering, does all of this sound a little bit familiar to you? I can't help but wonder if Peter wasn't having deja vu all over again. After all, both of these miracles mirror works that, did, that Jesus did while bodily on the earth that Peter experienced firsthand and that Luke recorded in his first volume. In fact, incredibly, what Peter said here in Aramaic, Tabitha, cum, differs by only one letter from what Jesus said, Talitha, cum, in raising Jairus' daughter. So what is going on? Why would the Lord lead Peter in this way? And why does Luke write his record in this way? Well, remember, the purpose of miracles was not to cause us to think that it's God's intent to miraculously heal in every situation. Rather, they were extra ordinary and took place in order to validate that Jesus was and is God incarnate. I believe all of these events relate to what I alluded to earlier. In chapter 10, we'll begin the longest narrative in the book of Acts and what many commentators call the turning point of the book. Therefore, as we end chapter 9, it is taking Peter literally and the reader figuratively on a journey toward this enormous turning point in the story. But before we are ready for this world-changing pivot for the church, we need to be reminded of what has not changed. Through the miracles in Lydda and Joppa, two things come back into crystal clear focus. First and foremost, Jesus is still here. Peter said to Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. And Peter hid his knees knowing that only Jesus Christ could raise Tabitha from the dead. 
Peter did not just remember a sacrificial savior who was. He proclaimed a living God who is. And second, Jesus is still extraordinary. He is the living God who through Peter lifted Aeneas from his bed of paralysis. He is the living God who through Peter lifted Tabitha even from her bed of death. Jesus is alive. Jesus is here. And he is extraordinary even still today. He wants Peter to know it. He wants us to know it. Can I ask you a question? Is your Jesus alive? Honestly, do you simply honor a moral teacher or seek to emulate a spiritual leader? Or do you actually walk in a living relationship with a living Lord? How often throughout the day do we seek to cultivate consciously communion with Jesus? And also, how often are we remembering and recognizing just how amazing he really is? We are to remember those things and to realize that Jesus is with and leading Peter as we prepare to turn the page on the chapter and the story of the advance of the church. But before we turn the page... Jesus takes Peter and Luke takes us one step further down the road of preparation. Verse 43, and Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. One verse and just a detail in the story. But it's another example of how Jesus gently leads us to get us where he wants us to go. Now, I won't go into detail now, but as we move into chapter 10, just remember that a tanner, even a Jewish tanner like Simon, was considered unclean. Why? Because he spent his days handling animals that were unclean. And Peter? Well, he is about to find himself in a veritable zoo of unclean. Chapter 10, verse 1. Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continuously. Caesarea was built by Herod the Great. It was named for Caesar Augustus. It was the seat of Roman administration in Palestine. The majority of the population were Gentiles. It even had a temple dedicated to Caesar. It represented the heart of the Gentile penetration of Israel and subjugation to Rome. And thus it was hated by the Jews. But here lived Cornelius, a centurion, a leader of about 100 men in the Roman army. And how does Luke describe him? As devout and God-fearing, caring for the Jewish people and committed to prayer, not to the gods of Rome, but to the one true God of Israel. So in the heart of Roman influence in Palestine lives this man who was not a proselyte, a full convert to Judaism, but rather a Gentile seeking after God. 
You know, many people question God because they say that it's not fair that those who have not yet heard and accepted Christ would be judged. The so-called innocent person in Africa. Yet the scriptures and history time and time again show God going to extraordinary lengths to bring the truth of the good news to those whose hearts seek after him. And Cornelius is a perfect example. Verse three, about the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now, Dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So here we have a Gentile, not an Israelite, but a God-fearing and God-seeking Gentile. And as he is praying during the usual Jewish time of prayer in the afternoon, an angel appears to him and tells him that his prayers and his alms have ascended as a memorial before God using language similar to the sacrifices of the temple. And the angel tells Cornelius to send for Peter. Now this is extraordinary a Gentile in a city built by a Gentile ruler to honor a Roman empire is visited by an angel from heaven and told to send for a Jew who's now the leader of a Jewish sect claiming to have found the Jewish Messiah. And really, up to this point, that's what the early church was. The term Christian had never yet been used. And the way is in no way worldwide. Which means in order for the church to fulfill the commission given by Jesus to make disciples of all the nations, all peoples, something is gonna have to significantly change. And that is exactly what is about to happen. Verse nine, on the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times. And immediately the object was taken back up into the sky. As Cornelius' men 
from Caesarea, approached Joppa. Peter goes to the rooftop to spend time in prayer, though not at the usual time of prayer, but while he's awaiting lunch. And the Lord causes Peter to fall into a trance. And then he sees this sheet descending from heaven, filled with all kinds of animals and birds. A strange sight indeed. Then something even more bizarre occurs. A voice from heaven tells Peter, kill and eat. Now, it is hard for us in our culture and in our time in history to even understand what's happening here. But the key from verse 12 is that the sheet contained all kinds of animals, crawling creatures, and birds. And many of these would have been absolutely off limits for a Jew. From the giving of the law in Leviticus, Jews had food laws that strictly determined what they could or could not eat. And any devout or even culturally compliant Jew would never eat unclean food such as camel, rabbit, or pork. Can you even imagine life without bacon? Oh, thank you, Lord, for Acts chapter 10. Anyway, the voice from heaven tells Peter to kill and eat these, including that which is unclean for a Jew. And Peter, in typical Peter fashion, says, No way, Lord. In his zeal, he desires to maintain his faithfulness to God. And this gives us a glimpse of how a man formed under Judaism would, of course, be shaped and led by the law, even though he is now a minister and proclaimer of a new covenant of grace. Thus, verse 15 is critical. Again, a second time, the voice came to him and said, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. And to reinforce the lesson and be sure that Peter can't chalk it up to a hungry hallucination, the entire scene repeats twice more. God is seeking to drive home the point for Peter. So what is the point? And why does it matter so much? You know, this past week, I have really prayerfully wrestled with how to make the complexity of the plan of God from Abraham to Acts clear and simple and to do so in a short message in which I have a lot of material to cover. So here's the most simple way that I can explain thousands of years of history and theology in about a minute. Ever since the fall of man, it was always God's intent to bring salvation to all the peoples of the earth through his incarnation, death, burial, and resurrection. But before Jesus came, God chose a people, the descendants of a man named Israel, through whom he could reveal his nature and his character and to show why a sinful people cannot dwell in the presence of a holy God. Thus, God created laws to set Israel apart from the pagan nations of the earth, including things such as these food regulations. And he established the sacrificial system to introduce the concept of atonement, which would find its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. So in Acts 10, God must now help Peter, 
the early church and believers all the way up to us today to understand that Christ has fulfilled the law and we are now to approach God and live under the rule of God according to the new covenant established through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And the opportunity for relationship with God is now available to everyone. Everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. But how do you get a group of Jews steeped in Judaism to move from being a Jewish sect of Jesus followers to a new and living temple as a church of the living God that is for and composed of people from every tribe and tongue? You have to step by step take them on a journey of preparation and then miraculously call them to crash through previously impenetrable walls. That's what's happening in our text today. Acts 10 and the beginning of 11 represent a critical pivot in the book and in the progressive revelation of the plan of God for the redemption of people from every tribe and tongue. Verse 17. Now while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision he had seen might be. Behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked for directions to Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. But get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings. For I have sent them myself. Peter went down to the men, and he said, Behold, I'm the one you are looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? Then they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. So he invited them in and gave them lodging. And on the next day, he got up and went away with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. In God's perfect timing and demonstrated sovereignty, the men from Caesarea arrive at precisely the moment that God has brought Peter to a point of readiness to move across boundaries that he previously would not have been able to even comprehend. Step by step, God took the apostles and the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea, then to the half-Jewish people of Samaria, then progressively into more Gentile-inhabited cities such as Lydda and Joppa. And the Lord even put Peter right in the home of an unclean tanner upon whose roof he would tell Peter that because of what Christ has done, no one has to be unclean any longer. Jesus can cleanse every heart from sin both Jew and Gentile alike. And next week, we'll get to hear the rest 
of the story. But before we close today, let us recognize the sovereignty and the goodness of God as he is on the move through his church. Jesus, by his spirit, takes Peter from place to place. He shows Peter and us that he is still here, that he is doing the amazing, and that he is for everyone. Do we believe that those things are still true? Do we live daily believing that just as in the first century, still today in the 21st century, Jesus is right here? He is not a dead Savior. He must be in each of our lives a living and reigning Lord. And do we see that he is still extraordinary And still today, even in our pluralistic world, he is for everyone. Jesus is right here. Jesus is extraordinary. And Jesus is for everyone. He's the amazing Savior and living Lord who offers his love, light, truth, and hope to every person in every culture, in every corner of our city, in every tribe of our world. Which brings us back to the question that I asked at the beginning. How are we personally and specifically daring to be the church? Peter's example in our text today shows us that if we are to be the church, it requires that we be willing to get our hands dirty that hearts might become clean. We cannot sit on the sidelines or simply hope from a distance that people will come to know our amazing Jesus. We must be willing to cross uncomfortable barriers for the glory of God and for the good of others. And it can and should look different for each of us. Perhaps Some here are called to care for the hurting and the broken, like Aeneas, the paralytic. Today, God likely will not use us to bring immediate physical healing to such a person's body. But oh, how God could use some of us to bring hope and light, love and salvation to such a person's soul. Perhaps some of us here are called like Tabitha, to show and share the light and love of Jesus by caring for the widow or the orphan, by using your skills to create that which is beautiful as a gift of love to those who will be more likely to hear and receive the good news of Jesus if it comes wrapped in a garment of love. Perhaps many of us here this morning are called to go by God across cultural, racial, or socioeconomic barriers to bring the desperately needed love of Jesus to all kinds of people all over our city and even all around our world. Church, we have much opportunity 
and much work to do if we, Lincoln Berean, are to be a church that are truly the hands and feet of God all across Lincoln and even beyond. Now what's awesome is that just yesterday, many of you took a step in that direction. Hundreds of us got our hands dirty in ministry. Some of you literally during our serve day by seeking to serve the people of our city and show forth the love of our Savior. Thank you to all who were involved. God used you. And even simple steps of faith and service can eventually lead to world-changing outcomes. Just like Peter going step by step towards Caesarea. For great advances of the church come from small steps of obedience by the followers of Jesus Christ. Peter didn't go from cowering in the upper room straight to Caesarea. And God doesn't usually take us from our pleasant, our present place directly to world changing pivot points for Christ. He takes us step by step. That's certainly been true in my life. One of the things that I am most thankful for is the part that God has allowed me to have in our church's work in South Asia. Did you know that over 10,000 previously unreached people will now be joining all of us around the throne of God for all eternity? God has done the extraordinary through our church. But believe it or not, I never intended to be involved in South Asia. I didn't even plan to be involved in church planning. I just, as a young believer, sought to know and follow Jesus step by step. And for my wife, Cincy, and I, our South, our South Asia journey began 30 years ago, by simply obeying God's prompting to pray. And for Cincy to organize our ministry team to pray for unreached people and discovering that India was full of spiritual need. It also began for us by buying a light bulb. Literally. We gave $45 to buy one 16 millimeter film projector light bulb so that the film Jesus might be shown among the unreached people of India. And from there, as the Spirit led, we just kept taking another step. When we choose to follow Jesus step by step, before you know it, our extraordinary God sometimes leads us to some pretty incredible places. Just like Peter as God now leads him towards Caesarea and the gospel into all the world. So how about you? Are you taking spirit-led steps? Are you getting your hands dirty in ministry that hearts might become clean in Christ? If not, I implore you, as the men from Joppa implored Peter to come to, to Tabitha, I implore you not to waste your life. Take a step. 
Get your hands dirty in some sort of ministry. Seek Jesus and let him lead you across uncomfortable boundaries. For that is really the only way that you and I will ever actually get to be a part of daring to be the church. Jesus, we thank you that you are still right here, that you are amazing, extraordinary. God, we thank you that you are for everyone. We thank you that you are not just a Savior who died for us, but that you are a living and reigning Lord. You are right now, this very moment, and for all eternity, King of Kings. God, call us to be worshipers of you who take steps one by one as your spirit leads to dare to be the church. In your name we pray, amen.